Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, having explained the words from the Apostles' Creed, I believe in Jesus Christ, we now turn to the explanation of His only Son, our Lord. Now, each name or title of our Savior has his own background. But all four names reveal how he brings us back to God. He heals what was broken, that covenantal relationship. Now, with three of the four names, that is clear. He is called Jesus because he saves us. He is called Christ because he's our prophet, priest, and king. He is called Lord, and we will see this later, because he has delivered us from all evil powers. But the question now is what benefit does it have for us that he is called the only begotten Son of God? Because there's indeed an a striking difference between this name and those other three names. Those three names reveal in their own way what Jesus does for us. He's our Lord, Jesus Christ. But being called the only Son of God, it is as if the distance between Him and us and between God and us becomes bigger instead of smaller. God and Christ stand as Father and Son directly next to each other. But are we then therefore distant from them? Doesn't the word only begotten sound somewhat exclusive? Like he is the only son of God, no one else. But yet, what about us then? With regards to Jesus Christ being our only Lord, that's no problem to us. Although for many Christians, the title Lord or Curios in Greek only refers to Jesus. But the word in itself, unfortunately, has no practical meaning for them. That's why it's good that the Catechism asks about this title too, Our Lord, Our Curious. But what about us? How important is it to us that He is not only our Lord, but also the only begotten Son of God? And why is it so crucial for us to confess this as church? Well, we hope to see this this afternoon as I again preach to you the gospel as we confess it in Lord's Day 13 under the theme, the crucial confession of his son and our curious. First, we'll look at the uniqueness of the only begotten one. Second, our gladness because of his position. And third, the timing of his lordship. The crucial confession of his son and our curious. First, the uniqueness of the only begotten one. As mentioned, Jesus is the only begotten Son of God. Now, if you read the Catechism, it does not immediately sound overly enthusiastic about this. 
we rather feel a sense of embarrassment with this. After all, we feel compelled to stand up for ourselves. Of course, in all modesty. Aren't we not also? Are we not also children of God? Come on. And this is not asked because Christ is called the the Son of God, not because he is the primary primarily Son, but because he is revealed as the only begotten Son. He has no one besides him. No brothers, no sisters. It seems as if God does not have any more children than this Son. What about us? Beloved, it seems also that our confession reckons it as of such importance that it straight away asks this question. It's the first question in Lord's Day 13. It should be important. But is that a right approach? One could ask. It doesn't sound very humble, rather arrogant and almost intrusive. What is discussed here is, is the name of Christ and not of us. It's not our turn, is it? Would it not have been more respectful if um, Ursinus and Olivianus first considered why Christ is called God's only Son and only after that, if necessary, what that meant for us who are also children of God. But no, the Catechism is quick to, to clarify our own position. Why start hastily with ourselves? Well, beloved, to understand this, we need to ask the reason for question 33. Indeed, there is no suspicion or uncertainty about our own connection with God. We are God's children. That's a given for Christ's sake. But what we want to know is, just as with the other three names, what advantage is there for us that he is called God's only begotten Son? And what does that mean for us? that he is the only natural son of God. We need confirmation. Not only about our position, but more about his position as the only begotten son. Now before we answer these, these questions, another question must be answered as first uh, must be answered first. Is it sure, is it indeed true that Jesus is, in the full sense of the word, the Son of God? And the reason why this question is important to, answer, to be answered first is because many today, many calling themselves Christians, both in this country and in others, and particularly in the United States, in some way or another deny Jesus being the Son of God in the full sense of the word. Because they say that the Bible 
does not absolutely prove that Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth is God's natural son. For example, the Jehovah's Witnesses, and, and particularly the Mormons, believe Jesus Christ is Heavenly Father's only begotten Son in the flesh. Now, that appears doctrinally sound. But elsewhere, they explain themselves. They say that Jesus was born as were all spiritual children of the Father. God was his Father, just like all God's other spiritual children have him as Father. But because Jesus was the firstborn spiritual child of God, he obtained the divine birthright. Jesus, in Mormon theology, is divine, but it's only a derivative divinity. He just got it from God. He is not the, the natural of the same nature Son of God. Nor is he, his sonship eternally different from ours. Rather, he inherited powers of Godhood and divinity from his Father including immortality. As one Mormon theologian puts it, he is God the second, the Redeemer. But beloved, this is not what we confess in the catechism, nor in any ecumenical creed. In fact, Scripture speaks clearly who Jesus is. Because when Jesus was baptized and then during his glorification on the mountain, later God spoke from heaven saying, This is my son. Matthew 3.17 and 17.5 And then the Father meant this in the fullest and deepest sense of the word. So there's no reason to interpret this direct opening in a different way. God himself indicated Jesus as his, his natural son, God of God, because he always has and will be with God. Yes, he, he is God, John 1 verse 1. It's interesting that also the hostile Jews knew that Jesus called God his own father, and by this he meant that he was equal with God, John 5, 18. And therefore we deprive Christ of his divine honor if we do not confess plainly and without reservation that he is the natural son of God. And that is why we would not even want to stand in the shoes of those who tinkle with this doctrine, who mess with it, with all kinds of creative ideas. Even though they might write all kinds of praising books about Jesus. We should not be even thinking of going that way they went. But yes, as I've mentioned, there is more to it. Because we start with the questions, what advantage is there for us that he is called God's only begotten son? And what does it mean for us that he is the only natural son of God? And so we come to our second point, our gladness because of his position. 
Congregation, why are we glad that Jesus is called God's only begotten Son? Was it necessary for our salvation that He is the only begotten Son of God? Or is it just an interesting fact? Something that doesn't really matter or, or, or change anything about the quality of His work? For example, we can appreciate a, uh, the good qualities of, of an architect or, or a builder and at the same time disagree about whether he is the natural son of his father. In terms of his performance, it doesn't make any difference whether he is the natural or the biological son of his father. Does the same apply to Christ? Well, certainly not. Not only his godly honor, for the sake of his godly honor, but also because our salvation is then at stake. Lord Psalm 5 and 6 showed us why we can only be saved by the Son of God, who is also truly God himself. That's why we also defend this doctrine that none other than the eternal, natural Son of God is our Savior. Otherwise, we were still lost. In fact, we'll be lost for eternity if He was not the natural Son of God. And this is also evident in the way Jesus spoke about His Father while He was on earth. Scripture nowhere pictures us Jesus standing among or between his disciples and then together with them address God as our Father. Not even in the, his high priestly prayer in John 17. He always called him my Father. And he told them to call God our Father, but he did not pray the Lord's Prayer with them. The petition for forgiveness of sins alone makes that impossible. And to Mary, he said, I will ascend to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. John 20, verse 17. Beloved, does he then imply that God has only one Son and that we as Adopted children are far behind him. Because literally, the word only begotten does indeed mean that God has not more than one son. That one is, of course, also his favorite child. In the likeness of the tenants in Mark 12, the owner of the vineyard has a son who for that reason alone, is already called the Beloved. Mark 12, verse 6. God cannot love anyone as much as the one. We can never reach the level of that one Beloved Son, besides being sinful beings. But there's something surprising here. Because when the Bible calls Jesus... God's only begotten Son, He does not do that to, to uplift Jesus at the cost of us who are adopted children. 
On the contrary, that happens precisely to prove how incredibly powerful God's love is for us. So deep, so profound, that he did not even spare his own son. Romans 8.32 For he let him suffer under his anger to be able to receive us back into his family. The fact that Christ is the Son of God, even His only begotten Son, is rather an indicator of God's love for us. And the Apostle John was deeply impressed with this. Four times he uses the words, only begotten Son, in his gospel letters. In John 1, verse 14, 18, and 3, verse 16, 18, and 1 John 4, verse 9. And every time he does this to underline that God loved us so much that he gave his only begotten son to die for us. But also, the son himself loves us like father, like son. He's not ashamed to call us his brothers, Hebrews 2.11. In fact, He did everything possible to prove his love for us. Even the glory he enjoyed as son of God, he lay down when he came to earth and bore our punishment. He was abandoned by his own father while we were adopted. Completely unexpected. Based on what God prepared for us. And this is how the Son of God wanted us to be accepted as God's children. In no other way, only through His love and His service in love. And for this very reason, we don't hesitate to confess Him as the only begotten Son of the Father. If He wasn't, we would have been nowhere. And our future without any hope. But we also confess him as our Lord. And this we see in the third place, the timing of his lordship. Our confession asks in question answer 34, why do you call him our Lord? Now, beloved, in our country, Lord could be the title of a royal person, royalty. He can be called the Lord of the land or the landlord. Or it could be used for members in a high gathering, a council. They might be called the lords of the city. They're not just gentlemen, but men with high authority. Now, the New Testament also has a very general use of the word Lord namely curious. As we read this afternoon, when Mary thought that she had the gardener in front of her, she addressed him with Lord or Sir, using the word curious, John 20 verse 15. And another example, when, when Jesus sent his disciples to get a donkey, the owners or the lords 
the curious of the donkey were involved. Luke 19, verse 33. Gentlemen or masters were also called the, the curious, the owners of dogs, Matthew 15, 27. So the word then has a fairly general meaning. In addition, it also become the honorary title that could be given to the emperor or even to the gods. And now one could question this and say, well, should Jesus then share this title, this general title, with other people, even great people, but not as great as he is? No, not in the very essence or the very sense of the word. For, says 1 Timothy 6.15, he is the Lord of lords. He is the very highest. He is at the top, the number one. And when it comes down to it, he is the only Lord. Paul writes that while there are sirs, gentlemen, lords in abundance, there is only one Lord, curious for us. And that is Jesus Christ, 1 Corinthians 8, verse 5 and 6. Now that is acceptable. And that's why we confess it. But one, one can ask the question, since when is he Lord, curious? Because with regards to the name Jesus, we, we know that he received this name shortly after his birth. That's the name God gave him. Mary heard it from the angel and Joseph through a dream. And with Jesus receiving the name Christ, our thoughts go to his baptism in the River Jordan, when the Holy Spirit descended upon him, when he was publicly and officially anointed with the Spirit. But since when is he Lord or curious? Well, it is certain that he came to earth in the form of a servant, and he humbled himself to the death on the cross, we read in Philippians 2, verse 7 and 8. Now, a servant or a slave is definitely nothing close to a curious or to a Lord. So, during his suffering and until his death, Jesus was not yet Lord. He only became curious, in the deepest sense of the word, after his resurrection. Then God greatly exalted him and gave him the name above all names. And we may especially think of the name of Lord because that is how everyone would call him. Jesus Christ is Lord. Philippians 2 verse 9 to 11. Peter also says that God made Jesus to be Lord. How? Well, we read in his sermon, Acts 2 verse 35 and 36, by allowing to sit him at it, by allowing him to sit at his right hand. So what we see here is that the name Lord is thus strongly connected to the glory of his resurrection and ascension. And Jesus sitting at God's right hand. Maybe someone would say, yes, but what then 
before his resurrection and ascension, we could almost conclude, or can we almost conclude then that Jesus was not a Lord at all before his resurrection? But then that concession turns out to be premature because according to the New Testament, he was Lord during his life on earth. When Jesus spoke of his return, he said, Watch out, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. Matthew 24, verse 42. That's what he called himself. When they crucified him, he was the Lord of glory. They didn't know that, but he was. Already then, we read in 1 Corinthians 2, verse 8. It was absolutely certain that he would conquer the powers of darkness. Even more, all his life on earth was a continuous triumph over Satan. He accepted the existence of a slave, and yet he remained Lord. He fought against sin and death as the invincible curious, but he did so as a slave. And therefore, congregation, we must speak in two ways here. On the one hand, Jesus humbled himself as a slave, even to the point of dying on the cross. On the other hand, he, as Lord, conquered death on that same cross. Both are true. While suffering and dying, he disarmed powers and prevailed over them. Yes, he hung on the cross with impotent arms, yet he was victorious. He seemed to have gone to go under, but in reality he triumphed, Colossians 2.15. But what does it then mean that he was exalted? After all, this unmistakably signifies a real change and, and progre progress in his human existence. What did it specifically mean that he was made to be Lord? Well, beloved, then he removed the veil that had hidden him as the only Lord or our Lord. On the cross, he had accomplished the work of the Supreme Lord, but outwardly, only in the form of an infant, of a weak slave. And that was over when God gave him the honor and the power that matches this title. Then he was no longer slave. And Lord but Lord in full, to the point that he could sit at God's right hand with his glorified body. For that reason, his cross became his throne. This promotion was the crowning achievement of his suffering and death. And therefore, when he sat on the right hand of the Father, received that 
lordship, that special position, he sits there now as Lord of Lords, Lord of heaven and on earth. In fact, he's Lord of everyone on earth. For every man will one day bow his knees to him. All men, good and bad, everyone will bow. But in a special way, he is only our Lord. The riches of this title only applies to us. And that's why we call him our Lord. Originally, we are descendants of Adam. That means that we left home to come under the power, under the, the lordship, if I may, of the devil. And every man will admit that there are all kinds of bad powers that determine the life on earth. Although Satan is bound, there's still a lot of evil the devils, the evil angels would strain us and try to submit us. That's something none of us can deny. And that is because the devil keeps people in the delusion that they go their own way. But despite all the leeway, the devil has them in his power. And it took him little effort to get mankind this far. A short conversation with our mother Eve was enough because it will not have lasted much longer than it is described in Genesis 3. He then had us. He, he caught us off guard. Although we associate us with him. Could not be easier. But what way did Jesus have to go to get us free again? To change the Lordship? The nearly impossible way. Well, the impossible, possible gracious way. In fact, a violent soul on hell only was inadequate. For the devil would, would never let us go before our debt was paid. Remember his accusations against mankind, also in the days of Job. The only way out, the only way to exchange our, the Lordship above us was through the blood of Christ. And it could not have been more expensive. Nobody loved us as much as he did. And that's how he became our Lord, 1 Peter 1 verse 18 to 19. And we are now owned completely by Him. Yes, there are lords and there are sirs in abundance. But says Paul, there's only one Lord, 1 Corinthians 8 verse 6. All these other lords, they abuse us. But we may farewell them all. For us only one remains. He who bought us with his blood. Something no other Lord would or could do. And therefore he is the supreme Lord. Our Lord. 
That is not just our wish or our aspiration. That is reality. Now, here, today. Jesus is not on his way to a, a political victory or a social position of power, for he is proclaimed as Lord for more than 2,000 years. 2 Corinthians 4 verse 5. And just as old as the confession of the church, Christian church is, Jesus is Lord, we belong to him. 1 Corinthians 12 verse 3. And that is the truth, that is the reality that everyone must deal with. His power is not determined by ballot box results, but by what he paid for us. Not silver nor gold, but his blood. And therefore, no one, absolutely no one, can claim you and I, us, to be under his lordship. And what a comfort for us. We are fighting for a case that has already been decided on. We are battling a spiritual battle, even against the evil one, with the victory already clear. We do so with Christ, the victorious one, our Lord. That's our starting point in every aspect of our lives, also in our political and our social attitude and engagement. Jesus is our Lord. And he's also the Lord of our neighbors and of all people who ignore him. They will one day have to acknowledge that in their horror. Although already today, they experience it. But one day, all creatures will be forced to confess that only Jesus Christ, our Lord, is the Kyrios, without exception. Even the devils and the wicked ones have to acknowledge that. Philippians 2, verse 10 and 11. But for us, indeed, he is our Kyrios, the Kyrios, who has redeemed us with his blood from all our sins and has finally delivered us from all the powers of the devil. And that is why already in this day and also in the future awaiting us, we have high expectations of faith in this curious, our Lord. Trust him. Serve him also as your Lord this week. Amen.